You're listening to Dedication Point, a speaker series and podcast produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. I'm joined here by our Birds of Prey NCA partnership president, Steve Alsip. How's it going, Steve? Going good. How is it going with you? Good. I'm excited about um, episode three of our second season of Dedication Point here. We've been sort of exploring current issues relevant to the NCA in our second season. Yeah, I think uh, I, I remember when I first came to the NCA when I started working in, in 2003, uh, and I you know I grew up in Louisiana, so the the sagebrush sage step habitat was something that was sort of new to me. Um, but one of the topics of conversation that was pretty frequent was, you know, what happened to all the sage? The, they were talking about the fires in the 80s and the conversion of, of sage step habitat to sort of exotic annual grass, this cheat grass that is one of the, the main sort of exotics in the, in the NCA now, along with mustard and, and Russian thistle and all these things. Um, and so it's really interesting to now see these like isolated stands of intact sagebrush surrounded by huge tracts of exotic annuals and um, try to project what the issues are going to be going forward. Yeah, for sure. And we're sort of trying to answer this question of like, well, what does the future hold? We've already seen these really widespread changes to the landscape and to the ecosystem. And we also know that from a climate perspective, we've really only seen the tip of the iceberg as far as the changes that are inevitable from climate change. Um, So, I mean, we reached out to this week's guest, um, who will introduce herself momentarily, because we were interested in this research that she's been involved with over a number of years about the effects of wildfire on these types of landscapes. And something that came up during the interview that I, I think neither of us were sort of that aware of um, before we started this conversation was the potential for these desert ecosystems to actually sequester carbon. Um, and so that opened up this whole much larger conversation that um, that, that I thought was really fascinating um, and really I definitely got me thinking about and thinking in, in sort of a different way about the future of the NCA. Sure, yeah, I agree. It definitely changed my perspective on uh, some of the things that the NCA will be facing uh, in the in the future, for sure. Awesome. Well, let's jump into that interview. Sounds great. I'm Jen Pierce. I'm a professor in the geosciences department at Boise State University. And my main research these days um, is in wildfire, soils, and climate education. So those are the the three sorts of things I've been working on. I've actually been studying wildfires in Idaho for over 20 years. I started working on that for my dissertation work up on the South Fork Payette and continue to have a research program in fire and fire-related erosion. More recently, I have started working, I'd say the last um, at least five years on soils and specifically on soils as a solution to climate change. So how can we um, store carbon in soils, both as organic carbon and inorganic carbon, and the importance of our soils and our our farmlands here in Idaho. And then finally, um, I do a lot of K through 12 climate outreach and have an organization called iClear. That's the Idaho Climate Literacy Education Engagement and Research Group. And iClear really tries to join K through 12 educators with um, researchers at Boise State to provide them with educational materials and provide a really a place for folks who are engaged in addressing the causes, consequences, and solutions to climate change um, to get those folks together. I wonder if you can sort of track your interest in in these topics, right? In wildfire and uh, climate science um, and soil science, like back to uh, a sort of like the seed of inspiration, I guess, that that led you down this career path. Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, 
Well, I've spent my, I grew up in the West. I grew up in Colorado and Wyoming. And so, and my dad was a geologist and my, and my grandfather was a geologist. So I've spent a lot of time out on the land. And I think that those just early observations of landscapes and, and birds, my mom uh, is a birder. And uh, so watching the, the arrivals of the, the swallows and the house wrens, and um, then noticing, especially as I got into my college years, the, the climate, the earlier climate science. So when I was presenting at my first kind of professional meetings in the late 90s, at that time, you know, the, the climate science was already very clear. So I always joke with people that I, I went to school for 12 years after high school to tell you, you ready? Uh, that fires are <laughs> that fires are bigger and more severe when it's warm and dry. You know, <laughs> shocker, right? Yeah. So uh, so that's really and and so I've spent you know 20 years kind of proving that point for um, for forests that that yes indeed in our high elevation forests fires are bigger and more severe when it's warm and dry, um, and that it's getting warmer and drier really every year. Um, so, so it was really through the, the fire angle that I got interested in, in climate change because I was looking at these records of fires that from 10,000 years ago. And um, so looking at these long-term records of fire and realizing how far we are away from that long-term kind of those long-term conditions. I think the next thing in terms of the, the climate education, you know, I have two kids, I've got a uh, nine and 11 year old girls, and they are not getting the tools and training they need to survive in a changing future. And none of our Idaho kids are. Um, and so I, I just, you know, that, that realization that, you know, it's kind of like my comparison would be like, if you, if you knew that your kids were going to have to sail like an old fashioned sailing ship when they graduated from high school uh, across the uh, Pacific, you'd start training them how to navigate and repair ships and all the, you know, there's a lot we got to learn. And that's kind of, that's, that's the analogy for, for climate change in the next generation. They have, they have this giant task uh, to undertake and they need to know, um, they need to know the science behind it and they need to know how we can manage for this in the future. Explain how soils became uh, an interest of your research. And, you know, you mentioned briefly about how soils maybe present a solution to some of these problems that we're talking about, about wildfire and climate change. Yeah, um, that's a super, I'm, I'm really excited about soils. So, um, yeah, about five or so years ago, I got involved in what's called this critical zone research out in Reynolds Creek, out in the Oahis, with a bunch of researchers. And I and I had studied soils in for my class for my classes, but always as a geomorphologist. So I was always interested in soils as a way to tell how old a surface is, for example. So the development of the you know, B horizon can tell you how stable and old a surface might be. And here in Idaho, of course, in our lower elevation areas, we have that the white stuff uh, in the soils, which many people would call caliche. Um, I call it pedogenic carbonate. Um, and that caliche is um, calcium carbonate. And that calcium carbonate has carbon as CaCO3, and it is storing carbon um, in our soils. So we always think of carbon storage in soils as the organic part, you know, the nice black dirt that you, that, that makes a nice garden. But here in Idaho and in our sagebrush steppe ecosystems, there's actually a lot of this, of this calcium carbonate or um, pedogenic carbonate or caliche that is also storing carbon. And it turns out from some of our sites, uh, new sites out in Kimberly, Idaho, that if you, there's a potential that if you irrigate with hard water, which much of the water from the Snake River has a lot of calcium in it, that those farmers have been uh, in, you know, they've been precipitating calcium carbonate in those soils for, for decades for free. Uh, and so the more we can store, you know, the more we can store carbon in our soils and the less carbon in the atmosphere, 
that of course is the, the key solution to, um, to climate change is to get that carbon, reduce the amount of carbon in our atmosphere. So I'm, I'm excited about that and have a great group of folks working on that right now, so. The organization that, that Steve and I are, are a part of, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, you know, we are a friends group for the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. And, you know, we're really trying to explore this question of like, what management approaches should be taken now and moving into the future, given the climate related changes that are inevitable at this point. And what you're talking about, about the soils uh, and the potential ability of these soils to, uh, to, to store carbon is like, it feels very relevant to that question. Absolutely. Um, well, I think there's a there's a couple different um, approaches to that. I mean, I think the first one, certainly as as you know well, um, in for the for the birds of prey that that fire is the the enemy of sagebrush, um, and that we really need to um, reduce human fire starts in our sagebrush step ecosystems in terms of both in terms of, of course, keeping that that biomass carbon in the form of the sagebrush intact, but you know, for all the different species um, which are sage obligates um, in in those systems. So that that would be one management implication would be okay. You know, let's really um, really reduce work on reducing those human fire starts. In terms of the soil carbon and um, implications for soil carbon storage. First thing is we, we already have a really good start with the Reynolds Creek um, CZO in terms of measuring, you know, what, how much car in inorganic and organic carbon do we have in these soils, but then moving to other areas of the Snake River Plain that our farmlands um, could, well, are in some cases, and then could be really great reservoirs for carbon and carbon sinks. And so when when I think about when you hear that term carbon sequestration, that often to me brings to mind ideas of kind of like industrial pumping of CO2 underground and and um, that but what if we could do that naturally by irrigating with calcium rich water and and provide um, forage for you know whether it was cattle or for deer and elk. So really, uh, you know, I think valuing our our open spaces for those those ecosystem services that the soils are are providing, um, I think is is an important um, part of this. So I think about just the volume of soil across the landscape. Uh, and so it, it's like an extra tool, like an additive thing, right? So keep the trees, they're doing their part, but also just like having some idea of how much, uh, like how large is the vault um, in the soil for holding carbon? Absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's this, you, you think of, you think of carbon storage, you think of rainforests, but the, I think importantly for, for Idaho that, you know, organic carbon in our unirrigated landscapes, there's really not much. I mean, if you went out with a shovel and dug into the soil, you're not gonna see a nice, dark, beautiful O horizon. We just, that just, it's just too dry. Um, so I think it was this, this realization and really um, counting the inorganic carbon, counting that caliche the, as calcium carbonate as, as something that was um, also storing carbon is, is what is really exciting to me as well. So, Well, if we're thinking about the management implications of this, one of the things that we're really curious about as we explore issues relevant to the NCA in this series is what the future of land management looks like. So in our previous episode, we interviewed the lead author of a new land management framework that the National Park Service is currently implementing. Um, it's called RAD, which is an acronym. Um, it stands for Resist, Adapt, Direct. 
So basically all land management activities currently going on fall into the resist category, but when we give folks permission to think about adaptation, as well as the idea of directing change, we're not only accepting the reality of the climate crisis, but we're also allowing ourselves to envision a future that isn't based on restoring landscapes to some arbitrary point in the past. Of course, this is currently only being implement implemented at the Park Service, and when we start to think about parks like Glacier National Park, which will soon no longer have glaciers, and Joshua Tree National Park, which will soon no longer have Joshua Trees, lots of interesting questions about directing change from a land management perspective start to emerge. We've been thinking a lot about these types of questions in relation to the NCA and the Snake River Canyon region as a whole. And when I think about the potential for carbon sequestration here in the desert that you've been talking about, I start to think maybe this is the future of our NCA. Maybe instead of expending huge amounts of resources trying in often in vain to restore sagebrush, we should be investing that energy into doing whatever is necessary to maximize the potential for carbon sequestration. You know, I'm looking out my window here at my office up at Bogus, and if those, certainly if those lower elevation ponderosa pine forests burn, I don't, I'd be very surprised if they come back. I mean, we're now outside, those lower elevations are, are outside the temperature and precip for ponderosa pine. So should we be planting pinion pine there? So that would be a very active management strategy to say, okay, well, this is the type of tree species that will succeed or, or juniper, and, and um, we're going to go ahead and, and plant these. But as you know, you know, as as the ecology you know community knows better than anyone, you can't just so that those trees come with a whole host of different bird species um, with a whole insects, you know, even down to the soil fungal, you know, uh, communities. And, and so that our track record as hu of humans of, of playing God uh, has, <laughs> has had mixed results, of course, if you think about like the cane toads in Australia and, um, and other catastrophic examples like that. So, so then getting to your question of, okay, for, for these degraded um, systems in the Snake River Plain, do we um, do we try to plant sagebrush? And, and I, of course, have seen lots of the little um, kind of sad um, netting around what should have been the, the sagebrush start, and we're really hoping that it, it can go, and, and a lot of times they don't. Um, so what can we do? And again, I, so again, I, I think what it gets back to first order business is to protect the sagebrush habitat that we do have. And so what that means is excluding fire from those ecosystems. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. Just a couple hours ago, for example, I came from teaching my um, 100 level class and I had one student who had the conception that, okay, the, those sagebrush seem to be they seem to be burning a lot and maybe we should get we maybe we should get rid of the sagebrush is is the sagebrush an invasive species i'm like no no the sagebrush is not the invasive species it's the cheatgrass underneath that's the invasive species which is causing these large fires so um so rule 1 i would say would be to to really hammer on the on on fire and try to exclude fire from those landscapes i think um but the other broader thing, which is harder to, to pinpoint, is that we all need to change our mindsets to this adapt mindset. Um, and that what, what I would love to see was, would be adapt as informed by the best available science. And so that within our national park communities, within the Forest Service, within the BLM, we have excellent scientists, the USGS. Um, so let's let's dedicate our scientific resources towards these questions of, okay, what will be the best um, series of species or, or suite of species to, to occupy this landscape in the context of a changing climate um, and, and make informed decisions versus trying to, um, and that it, with, within the fire community, it drives me crazy when, when people are trying to get back to this 
this condition that no longer exists, right? Um, and it's gone. We can't thin our way out of this. You know, we have to adapt. So uh, one thing that you said that kind of got my attention for these sort of still intact and pristine areas of, of sagebrush, uh, your comment was to sort of exclude human fire starts. And so, you know, my brain started going down that pathway and there's a lot of ways that one could do that, right? So just fire suppression, um, just when a fire starts, put it out as fast as you can. Uh, another way, you know, like you mentioned thinning, I don't know that you can go through and like thin cheatgrass and sagebrush stands, but is one of your ideas on that, like reducing the human presence, restricting human activities in some of those landscapes? Because that's something that the BLM uh, who manages the NCA will struggle greatly with, right? Like their multiple uses, they want to encourage recreation um, and other activities out there. And as soon as someone says, we want to, you know, restrict this, that, or the other in area X, um, people, um, the general public and people within the management agencies um, that gives them pause, right? So if you have a, a moment to think about that, like what are your thoughts on how to reduce those fire starts in areas like that? I think it could be as simple as anyone who buys an ATV in Idaho, there's a fire extinguisher attached to that ATV. And before you get the keys, you learn how to, okay, here's the fire extinguisher, here's how to use it, boom. I mean, so there could be some pretty simple solutions in terms of fires that are started in dry grasses from, from vehicles. Um, so I think, again, you know, of course I'm an educator, so I think that education is always the answer, but that, you know, this wouldn't necessarily mean you would have to restrict people in these areas, but there'd have to be a lot more education about fire and, and honestly, then more, um, you know, active management on those landscapes. You know, we, I, I was thinking this is a while ago, but, you know, we have a, we've had a different uh, Peace Corps and Conservation Corps. Could there be a fire corps? You know, my, the, a lot of my students in the summer, I think they would love to have a job of, of kind of patrolling campsites and putting out fires and, and talking with folks about fires. So dedicating more of our resources towards fire education and prevention. prevention so. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I mean, that could be, you know, there's been a lot of talk about a, a climate version of the CCC. Right. And that could totally be a part of that. Right. I mean, wildfire is so intertwined with climate change. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I, I think your point about more resources, I mean, one of the things that like uh, Steve and I and the folks in the BLM uh, and, and in the partnership end up chatting about quite a lot um, is this unique situation in the NCA where there's um, a, a National Guard uh, training base within the NCA, right? And, you know, all the, the folks that, that work in the, um, sort of, you know, conservation uh, department uh, of the National Guard like to talk about how the percentage of, you know, pristine uh, sagebrush habitat within the training area is significantly higher percentage than in the larger uh, NCA. And it's because they have the money and, and the resources on the ground to put fires out when they start. Um, whereas the BLM just doesn't have those resources. They have, you know, it's just like, that, that the money is, has not been in, invested in that. Um, so I, I, I think there's like definitely a, um, a, a capacity issue go, that's going on and we need just like a massive like scaling up of all these efforts. But like the other side of it is, is the science and the research, right? And like, even though there is not a lot of funding um, within the BLM, to do research. I mean, it, like I'm just basing that off of our experience of seeing what BLM is capable of doing on the landscape within the NCA. Um, the proximity to Boise State and like all of the researchers that are, you know, uh, doing work within the NCA, like allows quite a bit of research to happen, obviously. Um, and you're a part of that. And there's just this, like you were talking about um, the, the sort of adaptation and the idea of directing change. And you're clearly, you support those ideas, right? Um, but when 
we start to talk about like what that actually looks like. Right. So like that, I, I feel like it, 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 it's difficult. And I feel like there are still a lot of unanswered questions from a research perspective that we need to know in order to like take those next steps. Um, for example, right. It's like if a fire comes through a, a huge stand of sagebrush and maybe there's no like funding or capacity to do a restoration effort, or maybe a restoration effort is attempted and, you know, it has only very limited success. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you do? Like, do you, do you find a new species that like, you know, like you have to like do this like future looking like analysis based on, I'm sure climate modeling. Like I know people are doing like lot, there's, you know, I mean, we see stuff about climate modeling all the time and people predicting like, oh, Boise is going to look like Phoenix and it's going to have this many days over a hundred degrees in 50 years. You know what I mean? Like, what is the NCA going to look like? Can we apply that modeling to like these sections of sagebrush step and then think about like the species that are native to areas further south or in lower elevations and like start introducing those species now, but also be thinking about like carbon sequestration and integrating that type of research to like find the options that are going to store the most carbon. Yeah. And that's, those are, those are great questions. And I think that that's where the, um, those, those models do exist. And that's where, you know, I think the research community at Boise State and, and the USGS is the research arm for the BLM and they have scientists um, at the USGS here in Boise who are focusing on these questions specific to sagebrush. Um, and so, no, exactly. Those are, and I'm not, since I'm not a sagebrush ecologist, I'm not gonna try to uh, arm wave at what, what might be the right thing to, to grow in these areas or, or what our next steps would be. But I would say that that, that step one is that some of that research already exists. So for example, um, draw, you know, through the best intentions, drilling, you know, doing drill seeding and driving around on, on burn sagebrush step, you can inadvertently destroy that soil crust that is still intact following the fire and uh, cause a ton of wind erosion. So literally uh, many, many tons of, of wind erosion. So, so we have learned, I think, and I think that the um, folks within the sagebrush kind of ecology community would have a lot to add in terms of what, what restoration does work and what doesn't work. Um, but then that getting to this question of what are we restoring for, um, especially when faced with with cheatgrass that is going to, you know, it's it will come in uh, and reoccupy those sagebrush sites. Uh, is you know maybe that's, but is that is that the worst thing in the world? I don't know. Um, from a personal perspective, I like it a lot better than Medusa head as an invasive, you know. So, <laughs> but then then we then we should get into the question of okay, well, let's talk about carbon storage then. Let's Let's talk about, um, you know, and actually measure uh, changes in carbon storage for those different, both native and invasive species. Um, measure, uh, measure carbon storage for uh, native species and maybe future species. Should we be looking towards sites in the Southwest? Uh, you know, tying this to your previous example from places in the, in the Park Service that are losing their, their namesakes who knows? Joshua trees. We could try them. <laughs> I'm kind of joking. I think it'll be too cold in the winter, but but you know, you know, you never know. And so those those are that's I think that's part of the adapt is that uh, maybe the silver lining of climate change is that there is a that we really need um, both a lot of good science, but a lot of creativity when we're thinking about how to address these problems. So. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's definitely like, it, it's, it's a really tr tricky question, right? It's like when you're talking about, I mean, you brought up the example of cane toads in Australia, right? It's like, and there's so many other examples of that, of like humans thinking that we're like 
doing something that's going to benefit an ecosystem and then like just unintended consequences spiraling out of control and it ends up being a much worse situation than it, than it ever was before. Um, so it's like, we know that the potential exists to like make a, a decision like that, that can spiral out of control and make the, th make the problem worse. So it's like, how do you find, like there, there's this crucial balance here that is like so key to the way that we manage land moving into the future. And it's like, what's the threshold, right? Like how much scientific evidence do you need to feel comfortable at least starting an experiment and introducing a species in an area where it's not native intentionally? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, I think that's a great question. And we don't, you know, we don't have all the time in the world either. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think, you know, first step is to to build a, you know figure out what we know already for a sagebrush step and again there have been lots of great research on this um and the focus of a you know the big um kind of recent nsf epscor project here in idaho was genome to phenome and and specifically looking at sagebrush step ecosystems so there's a lot of good research coming out of that a lot of good research from USGS researchers like Matt Germino focusing on sagebrush step and a lot of good research I would say coming from our critical zone network studies. I'm working with scientists from El Paso and from New Mexico and we're specifically studying the, um, the warmer, drier uh, southwestern desert um, to the, the kind of northern um, winter cool, uh, summer dry deserts that, you know, semi-arid, I, I have deserts, I, my air quotes around desert, but that no one can see on the radio. Uh, but yeah, so that those, um, so I think that that study will help us really understand how, what the differences are between these landscapes and that will help inform whether, um, whether Idaho might look more like uh, like the Southwest moving forward. How you know, and how those how those plant species might might adapt. So, I do want to chat a little bit about uh, the the education, uh, the the climate education work that that you're doing as well. Maybe you can give me. Maybe you can start with like an overview of uh, like your your organization and uh, what your approach is, um, and and we can kind of take it from there. Yeah, so um, the organization um, that um, I work with is called iClear, so the Idaho Climate Literacy Education Engagement and Research Network. And so the really the, the focus of iClear is to provide our communities and schools with um, the tools we need to understand the causes, consequences, and solutions to climate change. So when I'm doing K through 12 outreach, I'll play a lot of greenhouse gas tag. If you um, studies from the Yale com climate communications and other places show that if you survey 300 adults, not a single person will be able to tell you how the greenhouse effect works. So most adults have no idea how the greenhouse effect works, um, not because they're people are stupid, but because no one taught them that in school. So I feel like for me, that's step one is for people to actually understand that by um, driving cars and emitting fossil fuels, we add more carbon to the atmosphere, that carbon dioxide traps heat. And just like a greenhouse, that trapped heat warms up the earth. So that's, that's kind of step one. Um, as we move though to, you know, and, and connecting this with what we've been talking about today with, with our rangeland ecosystems and soils, I think another big component of this is to understand how climate change affects Idaho in particular. And so I'd say, you know, for our forested communities in Idaho, McCall, those, uh, Idaho City, those communities, it's fire, you know, and for all of Idaho, it's, it's wildfire smoke. So the, the biggest impact of climate change on Idahoans is fire and whether that's direct effects of fire, um, whether it's uh, indirect effects of fire through smoke and fire related debris flows. And um, that in our, so that's, that's one thing I, I focus on with the education component. The other part for our, um, for our agricultural communities is that really focusing on the farms as a solution 
to climate change. Um, so that by, by retaining and maintaining our farmlands, by preserving farmlands, by the preserving the family connection with farms, you know, these, these fourth generation farms in Idaho, those, those families have a great um, understanding of change on our landscapes and how can we better connect with our agricultural communities to provide them with the information they need to, um, to keep providing food for, um, for all of our tables during a changing climate. So, um, so that's, that's another part of this is to, I would really like to listen more to our rural communities to, to find out what, um, what we can do to help. So whether that's, you know, planting um, different types of crops, whether at different times of the year, and then ultimately really rewarding those, um, those farmers for storing carbon on our landscapes, that they are providing all of us with a, um, a solution to climate change and they should, that, that should be something that they're compensated for. Um, and so that's um, something else I just wanna, you know, put on the table is that, you know, we in Idaho are open landscapes. And, you know, when you look at, you know, some of our, our rangelands and some people might look at these unforested areas and say, oh, well, there's, that, there's, there's nothing important there. Right. Um, but certainly for birds of prey, you know, well, uh, no, this is extremely important and, and it's something that uh, we need to be preserving. So, yeah, the connection with the agricultural community is so important and like finding like avenues to have that open dialogue and conversation and to like create a relationship where it's not just like, I'm a scientist, I'm telling you what to do or how it works, but actually listening and having a dialogue and like understanding that people can learn from each other and their different experiences for sure. It's awesome. Um, are, 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 are you like going into classrooms yourself and like talking to kids and, 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 and teaching lessons? Yeah. So pre, I mean, of course, pre COVID, uh, I could go in and, and play, uh, in, in the before times, as my friend calls it. Um, yeah, then, uh, and then now, um, certainly outdoors, uh, we play, we can play greenhouse gas tag outdoors and science treks, Idaho science treks did a great um, video of, of greenhouse gas tag. So, and I have um, a master's student currently working on K through 12 wildfire education. So she'll be doing a lot of direct, direct outreach to schools, so yeah. Briefly describe how greenhouse gas tag works. Yeah, greenhouse gas tag is, um, it's really fun. So what, what happens there is that the um, people play in tag. So the students get to be shortwave light coming from the sun and shortwaves are very energetic and run and move very quickly. Um, then when that shortwave um, light gets to the earth, then it is transformed into long wave heat and so long waves, you know, move slower, they're a little more chill. Uh, and then we just start introducing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and the greenhouse gases tag the, uh, the heat, they tag the long wave heat and do not let it escape from the atmosphere. So it's a little bit like sharks and minnows um, that, uh, yeah, so you've got that, that movement and actually the, the physical trapping um, really gets the point home. So I've found that even with second graders, um, they, they, you know, comparing the, the pre and post tests of assessments of their, their knowledge, they learn how the greenhouse effect works by playing greenhouse gas tag. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. You know, I wonder, it's like, I feel like climate change and I mean, it, it's like such an important topic and you've already discussed why it's so important. So I don't feel like I need to get into that more, but like, I feel like a lot of folks are hesitant or anxious about bringing this topic up with especially younger kids because there's this fear that we're going to like scare them too much or that it's like too heavy of a of a topic for kids or maybe it's too complicated for them to fully understand um and like and and i i just think that like i i i have had that thought i've gone into my so i have a kid who's in second grade now like I've gone into his class and given talks about like science-based stuff. And I've done talks that incorporate climate change into it. And I, I guess I'm always like, I guess I'm like, I, I, I 
even though I don't know, I, I have some of that like anxiety going into it of like, oh, am I gonna, am I gonna scare these kids and like make them really anxious? Um, or is this too heavy of a topic for them? And I'm always like surprised by how easily they absorb the information. And like, I mean, not to say that it isn't like really heavy stuff and that that affects some of the kids in, in different ways, but um, I don't know, you know, kids' brains think differently. And like, I, I guess I wonder like if there, if you have any like stories or anecdotes about like, uh, you know, an unexpected like response that, that like uh, uh, a kid gave as you were doing one of these activities or, or one of these lessons. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are great questions. And I, I would say that for anyone um, talking about or teaching about climate change, you, you um, pose the, the, uh, the problem and the solution. So the, the key to not having this be a, a scary topic is to always then, then to focus on solutions. So whenever I do this in the classroom, we'll play greenhouse gas tag. We'll talk about where the extra greenhouse gases come from. And then I ask them to brainstorm on there and draw their solution. I'm looking to see if I can reach any of them. Um, and these kids have the best solutions. They love it. They love thinking about solutions. They love, I mean, designing uh, this one girl drew this really super cool solar powered vest that keeps you cool in the summer and warm in the winter. I mean, they, they come up with all these great ideas and they're not upset about it at all. They're pretty stoked on their solutions. And so um, I'd say that is, that's the first thing is to say, Hey, you know, yeah, this is, it's, and, and, and I, I feel like the argument that, Oh, this is, this is too scary. We shouldn't talk about it. I'm like, well, we're fine talking about the connection between smoking and lung cancer. Like we want kids to make, to understand that so that they, they, you know, so, so they don't get lung cancer. Right. And so, so it's the same or um, electrical lines. There's, you know, you know, Idaho Power comes in and talks about staying away from electrical lines. Like we, uh, so just because something has a scary canals, right? So just because something has a scary consequence doesn't mean that we shouldn't teach them about it. It's even more reason that we should teach them about it because um, this is something they need to know. So I think, but I, I agree with you that a lot of people do have that idea, and I. All we, I run up against this, oh, well, we can't, the climate change is too complicated. We can't teach it until high school. That is not true. Um, second graders uh, can learn about climate change and certainly they love the solutions part. So um, yeah, never too young. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I certainly agree with you. Um, it's probably the most important thing that we can do is educate young people about what's going on and get them thinking uh, as young as possible about what solutions, uh, yeah. what solutions look like, you know? The other part I think is getting, getting climate change out of the, the science box. Like it's not something you just teach about during the one hour of science you have a week during your class that um, you can teach about it in history, um, within the context of the big burn, you can teach, I mean, poetry, music, it intersects with, with everything. And so I think it can be some math. Uh, all those topics can, can be geared towards climate solutions, which would be really cool. When you were talking about sort of the climate change message that, that, that you, you give to kids um, or students or, or anybody really. And, you know, we start to think about the future, uh, uh, our future here in Idaho and what that means when we think about climate change and how like the simple answer is that means more fire and more smoky days, right? You talked about how, like, I, th I think you said your PhD, re PhD research was focused on like basically proving that climate change makes wildfires hotter and more frequent. But we also have like over a century of fire suppression and the, the resources don't always go to the places where like fire ecologists think they should go. So that like we're still dealing, I think, with like the, the sort of like the infrastructure that we have built 
to deal with wildfire is like definitely quickly moving into like this this zone of like what you know fire ecologists and and climate scientists like like where it should be based on the research but it's it's not 100% there right um and you know there's a lot of research like there you know i mean we've interviewed researchers who like have you know, studied like some of the, the, the hottest, most intense wildfires in California and gone in and done like bird surveys afterward and been like, oh, it's full of blackback woodpeckers. Right. And it's like a lot of folks take that as evidence that like those really intensely hot wildfires, like, like there, there has to be, there has to have been like a natural incidence of those in the distant past. When you were doing that research and we think about these questions, like, are you trying to like, measure to what extent climate is the cause as compared to other causes? Absolutely. And that's, um, that's a great question. So getting back to the, the question of fire suppression. So what, what my research showed from the South Fork Payette, um, Ponderosa Forest, is that Yes, um, the Payette Ponderosa was characterized by frequent low intensity fires in um, what's called the Little Ice Age. So about 1400 to 1900 AD. And that human suppression likely has reduced those, some of those fires. But um, my, the research also shows that in areas like uh, Yellowstone or like the Frank Church or like Stanley, where you have these higher elevation lodgepole pine forests, um, those, those forests do not are not characterized by frequent low intensity fires and never have been. Um, so fire suppression has not uh, increased stand densities in those forest types. So moreover, both of those ecosystems, both the Payette Ponderosa and the Yellowstone Lodgepole Pine show evidence of large stand replacing fire a thousand years ago during the medieval climatic anomaly when it was warm and dry. So that was way before any effect. This is a thousand years ago. This is way before any active fire suppression. And we had evidence of large stand replacing fire in Ponderosa Pines when it was warm and dry. So I think that this message of that the reason we're seeing such large fires today is because of fire suppression, that, that is not supported by the science for many ecosystems. Have we increased fire activity in some areas due to prior fire suppression? Sure. Is that a blanket message we can apply to across these different ecosystems? No, definitely not. Um, and there's lots of evidence that shows that these higher elevation forests are absolutely, this is absolutely a climate signal. There's no doubt. Um, and also my research and many others shows that even in other, you know, again, these Ponderosa pine forests, it is also a climate signal when you have these large intensity fires. For your example from California, um, have there ever been, you know, yes, there's certainly for many of these ecosystems, um, even high elevation, you know, lodgepole pines, there were high intensity large fires in the past occasionally. The difference is that now, um, you know, this is according to the Palmer Drought Severity Index for Northern California, 2021 is by far the driest year that Northern California has experienced in over a hundred years. Um, and, and I mean, it's just, it's off the charts. And so, and so that's where, um, you know, that's, that's the real difference is that we're seeing widespread fires and even fires in places that haven't burned really um, at least in thousands of years. So. Gotcha. That's yeah, that, that's a really important distinction, right? Like different types of forests, different ecosystems. It's not, it's not like a blanket you know, uh, situation where all forests are the same. Yeah. And then if I could, I mean, and that's something, so that, that question of, you know, that you hear all the time on the news and in management is that, oh, the reason we've got such large fires is because of prior fire suppression. I want to see the data on that, um, before I believe it. Cause it's, um, that's maybe true for some areas, but I, we really need a lot more information, um, to, to test if that's true. I think a lot of folks 
like when when we talk about fire suppression, we're not just talking about fire suppression. We're talking about pre-European contact, the human societies that lived here very actively managed fire and did prescribed burns all the time, right? So it's like we're not comparing like human influence to no human influence. We're comparing two very different approaches to managing fire. The European sort of colonial last hundred year approach to managing fire to like what came before that. And that was a much, I mean, almost certainly that was a much more stable like scenario where fires were managed probably in a pretty similar way over a period of thousands of years. And yeah, I think, and that's a great point. I should have specified that there's no evidence in the Payette Ponderosa that that was an area of active fire management because it's all mountains. Um, Definitely for, for example, the Willamette Valley in Oregon is a great example of this. So the Willamette Valley, very few natural fire ignitions, you know, the lightning does not really strike there, but lots of evidence of um, uh, Native American burning and the importance of that in that um, area. So I think that there will certainly be a lot of great ideas and techniques from that prior, you know, era of, of fire management. So, and I, I will really look forward to finding out more about from, you know, my colleagues in anthropology um, about how that really looked um, in our Idaho landscapes. So. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is stuff that obviously fascinates both Steve and I. So uh, it's really awesome to have the opportunity to chat with you. Well, it's been great to chat with you. Really appreciate you doing this podcast and, and talking about uh, the lands we love. So thank you. That was our interview with Dr. Jen Pierce, Associate Professor in the Department of Geoscience at Boise State University. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast and the organization that produces it, you can head over to birdsofpreyncapartnership.org or check out Birds of Prey NCA Partnership on Facebook. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wildlands Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Music is by The Great Turtle. Thank you.